Hello, and welcome to the Engineer's Backyard Barbecue. The Engineer's Backyard Barbecue podcast is where we discuss science, tech, politics, and whatever else comes to mind. Join us as we discuss our topics for this episode. I'm your host, Benjamin Isay, here with our contributors, Dallin. Hi, Dallin. Hello. And Finn. Hello. Today, we want to talk about a topic that is perhaps best introduced by a figure that dominated American political discourse for nearly two years. And at the same time as the grand jury alleged in a separate indictment, a private Russian entity engaged in a social media operation where Russian citizens posed as Americans in order to influence an an election. The indictments allege, and the other activities in our report describe, efforts to interfere in our political system They needed to be investigated and understood, and that is among the reasons why the Department of Justice established our office. That was the voice of Robert Mueller, and despite the notoriety he received while serving as special counsel, you can be forgiven for not recognizing his voice. He spoke publicly only twice on this investigation, at least twice that I can recall. This press conference announcing his conclusions and his subsequent and rather reluctant appearance before Congress. Why, in concluding this politically fraught investigation, as we all know, would Robert Mueller choose to highlight this issue in a mere 10-minute statement summarizing hundreds of pages in, in his report? Today, we want to talk about the less discussed and hopefully less controversial questions about foreign interference in elections. We'll leave behind questions about which American politicians knew what and when and who might have coordinated with who. These are essential questions, but they are largely addressed elsewhere. Likewise, we want to put aside the story of the DNC server hack, the quote-unquote hacking and dumping operation, as it is called, though that is its own security story with lessons for technical staff and engineers everywhere. Indeed, many engineers and IT staff will recognize their own company's architecture in the Mueller Report's description of those events. But instead, today we want to talk about how Russia went about trying to manipulate voters on social media. It was much more, as many believe, than sharing bad memes in broken English. But neither did it involve, as far as we know, what we might call the worst case scenario, manipulating or compromising voting systems directly. Today, we want to understand what foreign officials did do, what they managed to get away with in 2016, and what they failed to accomplish. Likewise, we want to know, though we have much less information so far on this front, what they're up to right now in preparation for November's election. What are they trying to do to manipulate the U.S. electorate? All that and more coming up. But first, I want our listeners to know that today's episode is sponsored by the Sarah Obando Web Studio. If you need clean, sharp, professional website design help in an expedited time frame, the folks at Sarah Obando Web Studio can help. Whether you're trying to increase your small business's online presence or just trying to get your branding project started from scratch, the Sarah Obando Web Studio can help. For more information, go to sarahobando.com. That's S-A-R-A-O-B-A-N-D-O.com. And Finn, I want to start with you. I think at this point, most Americans are familiar with the story of Russian interference in broad swaths. The Russians tried to manipulate social media and they hacked, uh, manipulate people via social media. Uh, they were on Facebook and Twitter. But sometimes I think we get lost on what the scope of it was. Can you describe for us what happened in 2016? 
Yes. Oh my goodness. So, and and I um, didn't myself realize the scope of like just how much was going on until for this podcast I was trying to prepare a little bit more and I read the Mueller report or parts of it uh, that I had not previously. So, I mean, like I follow this and try to follow it and I know a lot of technical things and I've been trying to keep up with what's going on generally. Um, and I didn't even realize uh, kind of like everything that was going on. So um, what, what people probably don't see, so like what I got from the news and from national media and from other things was it was just kind of a like, haha, like Russia bought some ads that were pro-Trump ads um, that displayed on Facebook. And people saw those ads and maybe even made a few posts. Um, and that was about it. And kind of that sounds very innocuous and not like, hey, like that's really not a big deal. Um, but um, what I have figured out or learned is that it was way more than that. And um, what they did is there's a company over there called the Internet Research Agency, which sounds very um, nice, sounds very, you know, if you hear that name for a company, you're like, oh, I can trust them. Like it's an inherently trustable name, which is probably what they're going for. This Internet Re uh, Research Agency, the IRA, is um, backed by a Russian oligarch who's got all sorts of like, um, what's it called, um, ulterior motives that he's got, um, who's also tied all of these oligarchs, as far as I know, I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't know everything about the Russian government, but I mean, they're all in one way or another tied to the Russian government. Um, and they used the IRA uh, as a front and not even as a front, like it was very blatant. Americans just didn't even realize it was going on. They used a whole um, section of the IRA of people whose job it was to literally like just mess with the elections that were going on. It started around 2014 that they started testing the waters closer to 2016 in the election. They decided to pick Trump as who they wanted to actually get elected. Initially, it was like, let's just mess with and see what we can do. And then later it was like, okay, let's actually try and get one of these people, uh, Trump in particular, elected. And I believe that's because Putin knows how to play Trump like a fiddle. And so it would be fantastic if Trump could be in office because then, I mean, all sorts of like dominoes fall after that. And so what, what they did is um, some of these people were actually sent to the United States um, to take pictures of locations uh, that they could then post on social media to set up rallies for pro-Trump, that they could um, also interact with a few local peoples and maybe get uh, some of them to uh, sponsor these rallies. And that was another thing is um, on Facebook in particular, these rallies they would set up and they did it remotely from Russia. And then they'd find someone local to the area and say, hey, the Russian would say, someone from the IRA, would contact an American and say, hey, I'm busy. Can you run this rally for me? And Pretending to be an American. Yes. Oh, yes. And that's like they're not going to say, like, hey, I'm a Russian. They, they, they had American names, American profiles, American pictures. And they can – and then, you know, you, you gain the trust of these people and then ask them, hey, can you go um, set this up for me? And they would. And so there were several, like, rallies and um, – 
like real life events and money spent on things that was set up by Russia. Now, the the thing is, is hey, if you support Trump, like it's not, you you wouldn't see that as bad. It's kind of one of those iffy things where it's like, okay, I support Trump or I support Biden, but it feels really icky to know that the rally you're going to was not set up by Biden or Trump or supporters of him in America at all. It was set up by Russia and Russian operatives. And it's like, if they're doing that, like, what are they doing that for? Um, Right. And, you know, there's a moment in the Mueller report that kind of strikes me, right? So these Russians have started publicizing this event. They've contacted an American and said, hey, I'm an American too. Ha ha. I mean, they don't say ha ha. And then pretend (laughs) they, and then pretend, oh, but I can't make it to this rally that I've organized. Can you be the coordinator? And then the Russians call local media to get publicity for this event and then repost pictures of these rallies that they've secretly organized all across, you know, their own social media profiles. And there's a moment in the Mueller report where it talked about how this fooled unwittingly, there was no evidence of substantial collusion found, that unwittingly the president elector, not the president elect at the time, but the future president was sharing pictures of a rally that the Russians had shared themselves, that they had secretly organized and tricked Americans into attending. And it's it's just kind of stunning, and I don't think we appreciate the breadth of this. Uh, but it also wasn't all pro-Trump, right? Or rather, it was all pro-Trump and that they supported Trump, but they also sought to disparage Hillary Clinton among groups that they thought might support her. Dallin, talk a little bit about that. Uh, Yeah, so in the Mueller report they found, um, this is just one example um, where um, a big, a big um, talking point of Trump's campaign was that uh, Hillary Clinton um, mishandled her emails during her time in other public offices. And um, the candidate Trump um, made public statements, including the following, and I'm quoting here, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably probably be rewarded mightily by our press, close quote. And it says the 30,000 emails were apparently a reference to the emails described in the media accounts. And so um, the GRU officers, which is the Russian equivalent of the CIA, um, targeted for the first time um, Clinton's personal office, um, suggests, and they took what is believed to be about 300 gigabytes worth of data um, now, these are all just emails, so they're probably low data files. So I'm guessing the majority of the cloud-based accounts that the Democratic National Convention was holding. And um, it just showed how, not only how vulnerable, um, not only how vulnerable the political institutions are, but exactly how targeted um, targeted the attacks were and how much they were they revolved around what Trump was saying, if that makes sense. It super does, because you're right. So much of it was, again, there was no coordination. Uh, and I, I think we should take Mueller's word on that. But there was, they were responding directly to what they saw happening in the U.S. You know, one of the story anecdotes from the Mueller report that kind of struck me about the sophistication of this was that they had at least one of their Facebook accounts 
I think, oh, it was an Instagram account in that case, the Black Fist that was supposed to teach black people how to defend themselves against police officers and these Russians, no joke, so that they would have a legitimate account organized in New York City, self-defense classes taught by a real instructor and invited people to attend to bolster the credentials of their, you know, of their black, uh, black, um, black fist account and then would disparage Hillary Clinton on this black fist account trying to dissuade black voters from thinking well of her. And again, the point of this is not to disparage Trump or, or criticize Clinton or because, again, there's no evidence that the Trump campaign at this point, uh, there's no evidence at this point that the Trump campaign was working with them. But it's kind of stunning to see the sophistication with which they operated here. Yeah, why did they put in so much effort to do this? Like, did they do they did the Russians really believe that a, a Trump victory would help their interests so much that they were willing to pour this many resources, not intact? I mean, attacking the country, but in specific, very specific and surgical ways and not just a general hack, not just trying to go go after the CIA or the NSC itself. But this this whole political aspect, I, I, I find kind of fascinating. Well, so on that front, um, there there's um, a great article I read that we can link in notes um, that was pointing out, this was in 2015, by the way, and things have only escalated since then. And I think it's way more applicable now because we've seen from 2015 till now that this has definitely been playing out on a world stage. So I'll, I'll read a quote from it. It says, going forward, governments will increasingly rely on catalyzing contagious social protests to topple terrorist states and influence autocratic regimes. Russian military theorists were the first to openly discuss this shift in the art of war and to accuse America of pioneering techniques of fomenting viral protests abroad. Whether or not their accusations hold water, social movement warfare may very well be the wave of the future. And it, it did mention that there was a Russian um, military uh, official who did say that that's essentially uh, like one of their tactics in the bag that they use for warfare now. So it's almost like, what did they get out of this? Well it's a form of war that they're waging on American citizens that American citizens have no idea is even happening. Um, it's a psych psychological warfare. So in governments, I mean, one way you can fight a government is go fight them physically. Another way you can fight it that we, okay, by the way, this is not just Russia to the US. This is everyone to everyone because America is doing this to lots of other countries as well. We are not exempt from this in any means. But like, uh, if you can get people within a country to tear down its own government or to fight each other, um, that is a form of warfare that can accomplish many goals that you have um, in like against a country that you don't like for whatever reason that they're doing something. Um, and I think that was um, the initial starting point of what they were getting at in these election meddling. It was like it was something. It was an experiment back in 2014 to see how effective this could be. And they found uh, it's extremely effective. And what's interesting too, is it's m most effective on um, w sites like Facebook. Um, the Mueller report did detail that on Reddit in particular, which yay Reddit, thank you for being a little more reasonable. When, when the Russian uh, operatives would post ridiculous things or push pro-Trump or do whatever else it was, a lot of times they would get a lot of pushback. 
um, from other people on Reddit. But when they did it on Facebook, all it was was liked and shared, and it just spread like wildfire. And so it was uh, very interesting to see that um, on some of the platforms we have now, it's more or less effective depending on the one you use, and they've found uh, Facebook in particular is the most effective. And there was actually conveniently, um, recent to us recording this podcast, a former Facebook employee left the company who was a data scientist who was in charge of specifically finding misinformation uh, on Facebook and trying to like tamp it down. So she sent a memo to her former colleagues that kind of detailed everything that was going on in her job that a lot of people didn't realize. And like reading about this outside of Facebook, like I'm reading this and saying like, holy cow, she details how there are multiple at this moment in 2020, there are many governments, if not all governments, who are, who are themselves running uh, misinformation campaigns. Um, and we focus on America. But this is being used across the world because people are very susceptible to this. If you don't look into your sources and where you're getting your information from, it's very easy to fall into the trap of just seeing a headline and believing it. Um, and, and that is kind of what's fueling a lot of this right now, and especially if it's divisive headlines, because that gets people really um, uh, riled up. Uh, and, and that's what they use for these campaigns is they'll post divisive things that really get people riled up. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly right. And I think the other question, answer I'd give to Dallin's question too about why would they input put in all these resources, it would be to say, look at the cost effectiveness for what they got, right? The Mueller report uh, calls your attention to a congressional hearing, I think it was, that said where Facebook admitted IRA posts may have reached an estimated 126 million people. Um, there's only like 330-ish million people in the United States, right? I mean, that's kind of a stunning number. And look at the havoc it's wreaked. Putting aside what you think of the Mueller investigation, whether it was legitimate or not, what, or whether you uh, support the Nancy Pelosi response, put all that aside, I think it's undeniable that it's wreaked a certain level of havoc on the American legal and political system and discourse and man, what a cost benefit. You know, it's true it was a lot of people. There was apparently an IT and graphics department, but it was still in a number that the Mueller report describes as dozens. That's a pretty high yield for your investment if you're talking about destabilizing or throwing doubt or reducing the international stature of a geopolitical rival. One other thing I want to talk about is there has been a lot a mixed amount of information, I should say, about what's been happening this year. Uh, Finn, what do we know so far about what foreign adversaries are doing under the current environment? Um, well, the annoying thing is we don't know everything that we should know, because from 2016, we know this happened, and Trump got elected, and his best buddies, bosom buddies with Putin, and he downplays everything coming out of Russia, which is the most annoying thing ever, because um, they're still doing all of this. And now it's not just Russia, it's also China, it's also, um, is that Iran or Saudi Arabia that was in the report recently? It's one of the- Iran. Uh, Iran, okay, okay. 
So yeah, like it's multiple countries now who have realized the effectiveness of what happened in 2016 or who are now um, using the same tactics in 2020. Uh, and we've already had a report about it. That's the other thing. I, I don't know if people saw that on the news at all. It was just a blip with everything else that's going on. But um, there was a report that said, hey, we know that there are Russian interference, there's Chinese election interference, there's Iran interference. Now, one thing that's kind of beneficial this year, which I don't know if you can call this beneficial or not, but the Chinese in Iran apparently want Joe Biden elected. And so they're doing everything they can to get Biden elected. But um, on the flip side, Russia wants Trump elected again. And so they're doing everything they can to get him elected again. So we know a lot of this is going on again right now. And if you want pro-Trump, pro-Biden stuff, it's fine that it's there. It should come from Americans. It should not be coming from foreign governments who are making these articles, posting memes, who are disparaging others, finding dirt on candidates, doing all these. If it comes from America, that's what we want. That's what we expect. I feel like it should be stepped up a lot, the um, fight against the other governments, I guess. Yeah, like making sure that they stop doing that. So I had a question real quick. Has has countries tried doing this before? Like, clearly not on the social media, but has there been issues of, you know, leaflet propaganda stuff? This can't be the first time a country's really tried to um, influence American politics, is there? No, it's it's definitely happened before. Uh, I don't know the extent, but I in the things I've been reading and seeing, like, this is not new. It's just way more effective on Facebook. You know, and I do want to highlight a report because I do want to talk about kind of how this differs from traditional influence operations and the culpability of social media. But I do just want to highlight there was a really interesting report out from uh, and I can't remember the organization, but it was featured on the Arbiters of Truth series on the Lawfare uh, podcast every Thursday. They have a sub podcast. And one of the things they found was there was a group of security researchers that discovered from the exact same organization, the IRA, a fake, I believe it was a fake Antifa website, right, where they had hired American writers to write fake blog posts, them thinking it was a legitimate publication, and the site was actually designed to be, you know, make Antifa look bad, and then they started promoting it across social media, and in that case, they they caught it. And one of the quotes from the expert in that case was, you know, the Russians in 2016 did not even bother to pretend to hide what they were doing. They noted that on several of their Twitter accounts, they just re registered with Russian phone numbers. But now that we're a little more on top of it, there is at least an effort to obfuscate what they're doing a little more. Whereas in 2016, it didn't seem like there was much of an effort. Um, you know, much, there was a big effort to influence people, but not as much an effort to obfuscate what they were doing because it just wasn't on anyone's radar, whereas now it is. Uh, and that actually kind of moves into the second column or, or the next topic I want to talk about, which is what is social media's culpability here? Uh, and Finn, you were starting to express some views on that earlier. Yeah, so it's... It's not all Facebook's fault, right? Um, they're just there to, I mean, they're just there to make money. They're a company. But um, it, it's that they've become a platform where these things can happen. So same with, I don't know, in the past, newspapers or radio or TV before the Internet became popular. It's 
it wasn't like it's not the TV's fault. It's not newspapers' fault. It's those were being used as a means to an end. Facebook is being used and other social media websites as a means to an end. But it's not like, at least from my point of view, it's not strictly their fault this is happening. It's largely a democratic process that um, as people have free speech, and, and this is really interesting too. I heard on a podcast from Let's Know Things, they're talking about election, the election industry. And in other countries, when these things happen in more autocratic countries and more uh, communist countries, they're not susceptible to all of these like disinformation and misinformation campaigns as much because they can just shut it all down. They can, they can remove it. They go and find the people posting it and they end up in jail, they, whatever else. But democratic countries are really susceptible to this particular kind of campaign, misinformation campaigns, because we have free speech. And so it's really hard especially if uh, people are making uh, Americanized personas that look real to figure out who's, you know, who's fake and who's real. Um, and so Facebook, for their part, um, after that data scientist left and wrote the memo and said, you know, there's lots of these misinformation campaigns going on around the world by many governments, um, Facebook did respond to that saying, hey, like, we're still trying to do our part. And to be fair, like, it's, it's a really hard problem to solve, and they're trying to work on it. Um, they've been banning like millions of accounts every day at this point from bots that create these accounts and like and subscribe to, you know, everything that they want to be pushing. They've been coming up with many algorithms to detect and find these and shut them down. It's just a really hard problem to solve, though, especially when you've got uh, state actors who have a lot of um, resources behind them. And Facebook's just... They're a rich company. They have a crap ton of money, but they're still, you know, they're not a government. They're not, or multiple governments even. And and like everyone around the world is using them for you know, a means to an end now. Dallin, what do you think about that? What is Facebook and Twitter and these social platforms culpability here? I think it's a little more than what uh, Mike's suggesting. I mean, you look at the beginning, um, you know, Clearly, the the origins of Facebook was uh, was a kid in school who wanted to make their sister um, his sister's pictures more shareable with his family. Right? I don't think well, I don't think anyone's predicted the um, the far-reaching effects that Facebook would one day have. That being said, I think since they are the ones who have the platform of this happening, I think they are the ones that should share the brunt of the responsibility. As being, being an information company themselves, if you saw ABC or NBC, um, if Russia was paying NBC or ABC to, to post ads that were not sponsored by United States actors, I think a lot of people would come down on them pretty hard. And I think people would call for more government restrictions, regardless of the freedom of speech. I think it'd be more crying fire in the theater. And so whether or not restrictions do come to pass, and I'm not quite sure how any of that would look like, I think Facebook and Twitter need to play the dominant role itself in, in policing its own self. That's sort of my my take for it is that they're, they're, they're trying hard currently, but if they're letting so much rampant misinformation, um, uh, misinformation be prolifer proliferated, I think 
they have a responsibility to either limit or do something to their um, to their own programs such that this can be stopped. I don't think this is I don't think this is something the owners of the companies can just wash their hands of and hope that the United States government can stop this by themselves. Finn, your response. So that is, I, I do agree with a lot of that. Um, that is definitely, uh, although Facebook is trying really hard, I do think they've got a lot more they can do. Twitter's been doing a better job. Even Twitter can do a lot better. Um, Facebook has been notoriously uh, slow to, and I understand where they're coming from. They don't want to be the arbiter of truth. So they don't want to be um, the person who says what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, because it, it starts to step on a free speech issue there. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I have to push back a little bit on that point, which is that I think Facebook's argument here is is not new, right? They keep trying to present these as totally new situations as a result of technology and saying, well, there are free speech limitations. And I know, Finn, you are in the process of making the distinction that a lot of conservative media has not, right? Which is that the First Amendment protects you from the federal and state governments after the 14th Amendment, but not private individuals. Well, so in this... In this particular case, though, um, the the thing that to what you're to what you guys are getting at, I think, though, is the section two thirty um, section B something whatever it is that that um, allows them to do what they're doing. So that rule came about in what was it the nineteen fifties? Had a bookstore. They were selling a book that had explicit. Um, content in it and a parent got mad because their kid saw it or something and they found that the bookstore was not liable for the contents of the book it was selling only because not only because there were so many books in the store that there was no possible way for them to know um, what's in all the books and so they're exempt from selling explicit material um, by accident because they can't keep tabs on all of that all at the same time so that's been something that's been in the legislation for a while, and I, uh, both sides of the aisle right now do want to actually repeal that so that they can be culpable for that. So that, to what you're saying, like, yes, and that would kind of depend on if we're going to repeal that law or not. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not sure I have sympathy with repealing Section 230 in its entirety, although I think some statutory restrictions on it may be appropriate. But, but look, from a, just to move back a little bit, because I think this is a common misconception, right? And I, I do kind of take issue with people who say, well, look, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, these places should not be the arbiters of truth, right? And to, my, to which my response is, I think that's not a new problem, right? Media companies have to do that all the time, right? Churches uh, are putting forward what they think is truth and in response, limit what they think is not truth. Uh, individuals, companies, libraries, publishers, uh, they do that all the time, right? I mean, I'm sure if you went to, uh, you know, Penguin or um, Harper, uh, Harper Publishing and said, I want to publish a book about how COVID is entirely a conspiracy, they would say got lost, right? So this idea that, well, I don't know if the social media platforms, they want to be the arbiters of truth. I'm not sure I actually have the sympathy for that. Sure, there are marginal cases, and I think crafting a, a distinct policy about how to distinguish marginal from regular cases is difficult and i can see that point because unlike a publisher it has to be applied to a a, a voluminous amount of content uh but i'm not sure that we shouldn't try because of that principle 
right? You know, we can draw the line at hydroxychloroquine, surely, or, you know, we can draw the line at COVID-19 being a conspiracy. Yes, it's hard to be the arbiter of truth in marginal cases, but that shouldn't stop us from trying to take action on easier cases. Dallin. So then here's a question on, I guess, the other extreme. If, if social media platforms are unable to become the arbiter of truth, should they be allowed to exist? Because uh, one of the things I'm, I'm starting to wonder, you know, you can make an account. Much of Facebook is automated and it would have to devote in, in order to truly do this appropriately. They would have to devote an enormous amount of resources in order to in order to make this happen. And so in the case that they're unable to do so, should they be allowed to continue to exist? Well, and I do think, and I, so I think they should be, and that's actually one of my concerns about Section 302, um, is that repealing that makes it really hard for these social media companies, I think, uh, to exist, right? Because you're right. The, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try, was my point earlier, but I, I acknowledge completely that solving it will be a difficult technical problem. Finn? No, I agree, and it's... it's uh... It's a hard question, and that's why we're still dealing with it right now. And so that also becomes a thing of, do you want to treat Facebook at, uh, as, you know, a free speech space, or are they just just another private company? And it can go many different ways on that. So, however, which way it goes, there's lots of opinions. So I think the final thing we wanted to discuss tonight is what advice do we have for people? And maybe we can just go back and forth, but I had at least one piece of advice that after reading and researching this topic for this podcast that I changed, which was high subscriber counts are not um, representative of legitimacy, right? So in other words, one of the IRA's most successful accounts was won by the, uh, the handle underscore, uh, 10 underscore GOP, purporting to be the Tennessee GOP party. It had hundreds of thousands of followers. And actually, that's the one that most of, you know, Sean Hannity, Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., I think the president, sorry, I'm scrolling through the Mueller report footnotes here, Eric Trump, Kellyanne Conway, General Flynn, that was the one most of them fell for, right? And I think even I, as a normal, and I like to think informed social media user, would be the first to say, yeah, you know, you shouldn't trust everything. But if you see something that purports to be a legitimate organization and has hundreds of thousands of followers, you can probably assume that it's true and that they don't have the verified check is just a problem of, you know, administrative paperwork. Uh, and after reading and kind of researching for this podcast, I would say you cannot assume that just because something has hundreds of thousands of followers and purports to be part of an organization doesn't mean that it is. Uh, Dallin or Finn, did you have any ideas about what advice we could give to people as they consume social media? Uh, the biggest one I have is probably we need, um, we need to start compartmentalizing the way we get our information better, I think. Um, I think we need to subscribe, focus more on the local matters more. I think, um, I mean, despite our podcast, and despite the fact that uh, most of us have jobs in the tech industry, we'll be able to have very little sway one way or the other, except as uh, voters for um, both consumers and voters. Um, 
So I think we need to really make sure where our sources come from um, and read reputable news sources for information and not look to Facebook and not look and uh, not necessarily look to Twitter. Because I think I think we've sacrificed a lot of deep and true information for urgent information and for the 99% of us, um, all urgent national news will not affect us, but um, national news that we incorrectly understand could affect us. And so I recommend, you know, reading reputable newspapers, reputable magazines, and there are certainly biases in a lot of newspapers and magazines, but they certainly work a lot harder to bring truth in good faith instead of something that can be reduced to a sentence. I think we should avoid memes entirely, and you should never, never share a meme, especially political memes. Just about, <laughs> just about politics, right? To be clear, yeah, meme can be hilarious. Okay, I just wanted to, <laughs> but no, but, but but I think there's a, I think there's a point there. I think there's a point there though that we've we've become mentally lazy, intellectually lazy, a little mentally lazy, where we have a point that we want. We have a point one way or the other, and instead of having conversations with each other, we've just reduced it down to one meme that's both a little insulting and a little funny, right? And then share it, and we don't even know if that has truth anymore. And I, I feel like, you know, Russians, Russians aside, I feel like we are damaging our own selves, um, and the Russians are merely accelerating this at an unprecedented pace. That's a really fair point. I don't think I, I have thought about. Uh, I want to go back to something you said earlier, though, um, without diminishing what you just said, because I thought that was kind of spot on. Um, what would you say to someone who I think probably with some reason would say, well, I I ignore the more reputable, you know, the big, the New York Times, the NBC News, because I'm conservative and I don't feel like my ideas have gotten a fair shake on those media platforms because i i think a somewhat you know a george will type figure i think could probably say that quite legitimately that one's difficult <laughs> um you certainly have more conservative leading media the wall street journal the economist although the economist sort of flows both ways they're just i love the economist sorry you know the wall street journal is the most um, reputable conservative um, outlet that I am aware of. You know, it's it's a little difficult if you if you have troubles trusting the New York Times and the Washington Post, and you also distrust the Wall Street Journal. Then, I mean, I don't know. No, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I, I just kind of wanted to hear what you had to say because my response is basically the same as yours, right? Which is that, you know. Uh, there's the Wall Street Journal out there, you know, and the kind of the case I always make to people all the time who approach me with theories about, you know, Hillary Clinton's emails could have said X or Y is, you know, the people at the Wall Street Journal and the news section of Fox News are really good at what they do, right? And, you know, there are plenty of conservative journalists who would love to find those things. Now, do those ideas get a fair shake in the presentation of ideas? No, I, I don't think so. I think that's probably a fair criticism. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you that um, there aren't sources out there who would love to. And even the New York Times, right? I mean, the reason we know about the depth of the Hillary Clinton email server kind of scandal was largely due to the New York Times' reporting. 
uh, ask any of those Clinton people what they think of the New York Times, and they will they will have some very negative point of views about how they were treated by that paper. Uh, Finn, did you have any other thoughts about uh, how people should safely consume social media? Social media in particular, or just kind of news and things? Whatever you want, either way, yeah. Just, can you tell people how to understand the world around them, please? Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I don't have the a fantastic, like, here's what to do, because everyone's got their own way of doing things. But it's I for me, it's mostly just understanding what I'm reading, where I came from. Um, if you look at, and, and it's kind of hard to do, too. Um, so what would be helpful is finding a trusted news source, do effort to figure out if you trust them, which would mean looking into who funds it, who the writers are, some other things, their, their past history and what they have written about. Um, but once you find a trusted one, it, it's good to stick with it. Cause otherwise you can't do that with every single news source and headline that comes by you. Cause it's really hard. But if you find out who funds it, who the uh, people are writing some of the other articles that they've written, uh, that can help a lot. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. And, I, you know, I don't want to beat this horse because we've talked about it quite a bit, but the Russians didn't create the situation with the polarization. It just created a great environment for them to take advantage of. Yeah. Um, anyone want to anyone want to have any final last word before we wrap up here? So the the only thing uh, I just want to end with that I thought was really good is there was a uh, podcast from Let's Know Things hosted by Colin Wright that I think is fantastic. I love listening to And he had an electric industry podcast and he talked in there. Um, he kind of gave, and this has helped me a little bit, like um, he gave the point of view of like, if I was Russia, here's what I would do because it seems very effective. Uh, and he's, so I'll read this quote from it as he said, and he was speaking on hacking election systems. Um, he said, bringing down that system though, uh, requires that people don't take it seriously, which in turn leads to less voter turnout, leads to more corruption in the highest ranks of government, leads to weaker overall infrastructure, a weakened economy, a badly funded and maintained military, worse health and economic outcomes for citizens, and increased polarization amidst the populace and the people they send into political office, creating stasis and mismanagement and constant conflict within their ranks. In short, you could probably cause a lot more and a lot longer term damage by getting people to ask what's so good about democracy anyway, and by making it seem as if such a system just leads to more corruption, more insiders enriching themselves, more strange unexplained issues within the voter voting system. At a certain point, people might begin to ask themselves why they should even care about the central tenets of their country, why they should believe in it, fight for it, if those tenants are predicated on such weak and unmaintainable and seemingly corrupt concepts. So in that sense, like, there very much is uh, an end that other countries can get to, which would be that. And can they bring down like a whole country and a system through just interfering in their elections? I mean, not immediately, but it does go down that road. Um, and so it's you got to be careful to watch out for negative things that are tearing down our um, systems that we've had up for like centuries now because um, they work they're maybe not perfect but we can and that's the other thing we can make them better if there's a problem with it let's point it out and then work on making it better so if, if there's anyone out there that's, that's just uh, 
you know, grabbing on your hate, grabbing on divisiveness, uh, it's probably a red flag. I can't think of a better way to end this podcast than that. You have been listening to the Engineers Backyard Barbecue Podcast. Thank you to our contributors, Dallin and Finn, and our sponsors, the Sarah Obando Web Studio. Uh, Take care, and we will see you all next time. Thank you so much. 